0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. My guest today, Penn Gillette, is the speaking half of the duo Penn and Teller. Their act mixes magic and comedy with a subversive element that turns the traditional magic act on its head. In addition to having one of the longest-running shows in Las Vegas, Penn Gillette is also a musician, juggler, and inventor. The six-foot-six outspoken atheist and libertarian also finds time to write books, host TV shows and appear as a contestant on Dancing with the Stars and The Celebrity Apprentice. Recently, Penn Gillette performed a feat harder than any magic trick. He made 100 pounds disappear.
1: I had wicked high blood pressure, and I was telling myself, uh, because it's easy to tell yourself this, that it's genetic, uh, or there's nothing you can do about it, and then uh, there is. Sure. Uh, and uh, I just started eating in order to fix my blood pressure, which ends up as a side effect, losing a lot so of weight.
0: So were you leaner and and, and, and and kind of readier when you were young and you got heavier as you got older? Yeah,
1: sure. I was an American is another way to say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, was, Americans, so what were you eating that was doing you? What was the problem? Well, now I'm eating— uh, what, no, you know, what were you not? What are you not eating now? There I'm was... eating
1: no animal products, no refined grains, extremely low salt, sugar, and oil. So uh, I, I'm not able to do things in moderation. Yeah. One of the reasons I've never had a drink or any drug in my life is I'm very aware that moderation is not my strong I state. can't
0: imagine you and I, yeah. You and I trapped in this room with a bowl of cocaine <laughs> and the two trail mix bars <laughs> and the cacao. <laughs> Which we wouldn't eat the food if we had the cocaine. Yeah, I yeah. Would be like... But
1: so, so I've never, you know, had has so much as a puff of marijuana. No. That's true really never never a sip of beer because you know, I, no, why I, well my personality is such not only do i not do moderation i also don't respect it if you tell me about an author that i need to read i will go home and read everything you know, if you—when uh, if I, when I start to listen to a different kind of music, you know, if all of a sudden I discover Albin Berg, I'm listening to all 12-tone German opera for months. And I, and I love living like that. I mean, a lot of people uh, seem to strive for moderation. Uh, I don't. So if you and your wife are going to have a family,
0: you're going to have, like, 12 yeah, children? Yeah, we we, you, we where, have our 13th stop? child. We have our 13th, have 13th child. child. <clears throat> well,
1: fortunately, you're able to stop that with a vasectomy. Right. <laughs> and you don't have to do any moderation whatsoever. Science can yes. set Science. And, and Science can
0: step in on these things. And intervene. But, but, so, what's something that you craved or liked or that you stopped eating? It's really interesting. But uh, do you mind I, me asking? No, about this? no, no. I, find, I go up and down in my diet. As well. I
1: find that uh, it's exactly like situation comedies. When you're watching situation comedies every night when you're younger, they kind of make sense and you want to watch them the next night. But if you stop for two months and you go back and watch a situation what comedy, is this shit? it's nonsense. <laughs> what is, why would anybody watch this? Right. Don't they have real friends? Yeah.
0: Why are they watching yeah. this? Where do they get all that money for that apartment? And the yeah.
1: same thing with, with food. Uh I really, for the first, you know, couple of months, wanted uh, hamburgers and, you know, fried chicken and all that stuff all the time. And then after a couple of months, the food I was eating tasted great. It's exactly like, you know, you listen to music, you listen to that four on the floor, three-chord rock and roll, and you love it, and it's great. And then all of a sudden, someone says, oh, and there's jazz. And you go, oh, there's whole different sounds and different stuff. It's that salt Sugar, fat is just that boom, 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 boom. But you take that away, and there's a zillion other flavors. Everything changes, including, and I'm a little bit embarrassed about this, because I tend to, as much as I'm a strong atheist, I still catch myself occasionally in a in a mind-body separation, you know, thinking that there's, there's some sort of intellectual side different than the physical side. I was really surprised how my mood changed.
0: Are you ready to become a Catholic? <laughs> Very close. Wait, Very <laughs> close. Inches away. There, let's just, go to the Vatican it's, together. It's just, He's dying to meet you. I, I, he loves <laughs> your stuff. He thinks you're great. I talk to him all the time. We there, email all the time. There's a great story. I told him I'm doing the show with you. There's like, a great
1: story about uh, Roy of Siegfried and Roy. Yeah. Um, meeting the Pope. I didn't know that. And uh, Siegfried and Roy met the Pope. You know, the great magicians. They meet the Pope, and uh, uh, Roy gives him a ring. And the Pope takes the ring and hands it to the assistant as this is a gift. <laughs> Right. And then Roy goes, "No, no, that that is for you to bless and give back to me." My, oh my God! <laughs> <And that's,
0: laughs> yeah,
1: which is all you need to know about Roy and the and
0: Pope. The, and, exactly. <laughs> now, when you when you, you 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 just touched on many subjects: like atheism, <laughs> Siegfried and Roy, and magic, the Pope. I religion. You covered everything. Covered everything. We're, we're done. We can have some cacao now. But the the. Um, Let's talk about that. Meaning, did you know you were an atheist from from the earliest I, consciousness you had? Or no, no, no. I was,
1: I was, you know, people do this thing that uh, that I always, I always feel very, um, I feel it's very important to point out. They always say, you know, religious people must have treated you badly. I'm a religious person. I'll treat you well. The, the point is religious people treated me wonderfully. I have always been treated very well by religious people. I was raised, I have a perfect family life. My mom and dad uh, and my sister and I were very, very close. I was raised a congregationalist. uh, Massachusetts. Yeah, Massachusetts, Western Mass. And I went to church. How far from Springfield was your town? Uh, An hour, Yeah, you know, north. When I got to be uh, junior high age, my parents said I could go to youth group instead of Sunday morning services I wanted to, and I went to youth group. And I believe I was the only one who took it seriously. And the minister spoke with us about religion, and I read the Bible— and then came in with some questions. (laughs) And uh, I had a wonderful, wonderful minister who was uh, very open and would talk with me for hours. I did this exactly the way the church would want you to do it. There was no horrible rebellion. There was no fuck you. There was no screaming. There was no raping. being molested. I have not one horror story. I have just kind, wonderful, sweet people and an intellectual discussion. And I went, you know, I, I don't like the idea of putting God before my family. My family's more important to me, and I don't like the idea of there being a love greater than the love I have for my family and friends. And I do believe that humans are good on their own without this, and I don't think anything happens after we die. And my minister, and I and there's— You sound like a moderate Republican. <laughs> there's there's no way to tell this story without making him look like a goofball. But he's not a goofball. This is a sensible thing. He called up my mom and dad and said, you know, Penn is doing wonderful in youth group, but we're having discussions. And I believe he's doing a better job at converting the other children to atheism than I am with Christianity. Yeah. So why don't, why don't you just not have him come to your group anymore. Yeah. And I talked to my uh, my parents, and uh, uh, my dad, till the day he died, prayed for me
0: and would say... What, t- what faith was he? Uh, like Congregationalist. Said, yeah,
1: Congregationalist. Right. And he would say to me, uh, all stuff all the time like, well, Penn, you are such a good Christian. I'd say, except for that not accepting Christ thing, Dad. <laughs> except but, for but that. If you,
0: but if you separate out the the dogma of a particular religion, because I'm a Catholic, mm-hmm. I was raised a Catholic. And over the arc Perhaps of my, life, my <laughs> life I've been I've been over the arc of my life I've I've lapsed and mm-hmm. gone back and lapsed mm-hmm. and gone back. But a priest who I grew up with, who was a priest in the church I went to when I was a boy He said it best. He said, listen, all the great religions have something to offer to me, Hinduism and Judaism and Buddhism and so forth, and Muslim. He said, said, the Catholics just seem to have the nicest places to hang out, (laughs) the nicest real estate. But you separate all the dogma of any particular religion. And to me, atheism is you just don't believe there's a god. right. And I also, uh, regardless of your individual uh, relationship, right? There isn't
1: really there. There there is no moral uh, code that goes along with that. There's a lot of stuff we've noticed about atheists, you know, but there isn't a an actual church of atheism. And I wanted to say, with a great deal of pride, that my mom. When she was 85 Converted years old. Converted to atheism. 85 years old. Oh my God. And what did it was— And did
0: win, didn't this they? Is, this is, But this is the great— <laughs> and your father was like, God damn you, ben.
1: <laughs> But my, my dad used to say, and this is, you know, just a, a tribute. To how to My dad was the most, most wonderful man I've ever met. My dad would say to me, I'm going to have to work so hard after I die to get you and your mother into heaven. Oh, yes. But I'm going to do it. I just have to work very, very hard. You can make it so much easier for me. Yes. You have to know that my mom and my dad never said hell or damn or any obscenity in the house. Hardcore. No alcohol, no hell or damn. When I started doing card tricks, my my father was like, "Uh, you won't be gambling, though. You can do card tricks. But I I don't like having a deck of cards in the house. I would say, Dad, I'm just doing manipulations and tricks.
0: Oh, that's fine now when you, you, people obviously when they think of you, they think of you as part of a tandem uh uh-huh. and your partner, it's always mystifying to me the mute yeah. performer what's that like for him to play that role all these years well now? he it's 30 years. 40. 40. Good God. And uh, it
1: is a very— Does he never uh, shut up when he's home? Does he like? Well, that's, he... that's the joke. Yeah. Everybody in the crew will tell you, uh, Penn speaks on stage, doesn't speak off stage. <laughs> Teller doesn't speak on stage, never shuts up. Right. When, if you were to come to one of you our flip. rehearsals, uh, it's me sitting over in the corner reading the paper— and teller talking to everybody, handling everything. Tell us yes. essentially
0: Olivier Lucille Ball, the told director. Yes, yeah, <laughs> he's and, uh,
1: But you know, teller uh, directs Shakespeare. You know, he's uh, he's directing uh, the Tempest in uh, Chicago, a wonderful production uh, with real magic. He in loves it.
0: acting in theater. Uh,
1: yeah, uh, but more more directing and more writing, and he's very articulate. He was a high school Latin and Greek teacher, and he is a, uh, a classic scholar. Where does he live? Where is his home? Vegas.
0: So you guys both live in the yeah, same. Yeah,
1: about. Uh, Five miles apart.
0: Yeah, and, and and you have a theater that's your own theater. Yeah, it's, it's like the that whole Celine Dion thing. It's a Paramount theater. theater. Yeah, the it's, it's really. And nice. you're obligated. The contract is how many months of the year? Oh, it's till we die. I mean, we no, do, how many, oh, how many do. We do how many shows a year? Uh,
1: we do forty six weeks a year. Forty. No. Yeah. <sighs> when you, if we ever cross so your mind, if you ever, no, well, we don't have time off. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> and we sometimes do runouts on the on the day on the day we supposedly do off. Six weeks in Vegas. We do about. Two hundred and fifty shows a year, a little more. It's a pretty easy schedule, but I make it as hard as possible because I play uh, upright bass, jazz bebop for an hour before the show, right. and then we meet everybody after the show. So we turn a cushy ninety-minute gig
0: into three and a half. I like hours. Steve Martin, yeah, yeah. yeah. You have your own yeah. band and everything.
1: Yeah, else. yeah, I do. When Steve's in town, I, I love to talk music with him.
0: When you were a child, I mean, I, I grew up. And uh, anything magic or anything uh, of the uh, paranormal, if you will, Yuri mm-hmm. Geller kreskin all those things I mean, I grew up glued to that. I mm-hmm. love that. Were you glued to that kind of stuff? Or uh, when did it come into your life i was, uh,
1: I was horrified uh, by kreskin. Um, I believed when he went on he went on a television show and he did an experiment, as he called it. And I believed this was an area of science. I was fascinated by science, an area of science that uh, I I wanted to study. And my parents, who I said weren't wealthy, bought me a little ESP game, this piece of shit, uh, with a little pendulum and the ESP cards. And then I would do that with my parents over and over. And then, um, because I was becoming a juggler and practicing all the time, in the library, if you cast your mind back to the Dewey Decimal System, you know that the 900s are religion. Magic, juggling, they're all there together, which is great. My whole life is in the 900s of the duodenal system. I happened to see a Dunninger book, The Mentalist from the 40s. I don't know him. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he was a, the most popular mentalist, mind reader. And I opened the book on magic, and there, in there was the description of how to do the trick I'd seen Kreskin do as an experiment. And that moment— in the library was a complete breakdown. I mean, I went, I could not believe that a scientist, which is the way I perceived it, had lied to me. And I went home, I was humiliated in front of my parents. So
0: by the way, here's the birth of the bullshit show too, by the way.
1: Absolutely. It's everything, my whole life. Yeah. And I also pretty much at that point went from straight A's to failing. No. Because I said to my physics teachers. What's and the so- meaning of it all? Uh, scientists lie. Why am I listening to you? Scientists lie. But scientists real. lie. And I hated magic. Hated magic because why would you be fooling people? It's hard enough to figure out about the world. Life is hard enough. Yeah. Why? Why are you doing that? And my parents, you know, would try to console me. It, it's just a stupid little game, Ben. <laughs> Calm down. It's okay. No, no. I'm a juggler. I'm not a magician. I'm not. Yeah. All of this. And it wasn't until I met Teller, who I met when I was in high school. Uh, Teller's seven years older than me, and amazing Randy, and they explained to me the very simple thing that if you put a proscenium around something. It's all of a sudden moral. If Robert De Niro runs around New York saying he's Travis Bickle and he's a cab driver, he is insane. Put him away. If he does it in a movie, he's a genius. Yes. (laughs) And the same thing with magic. If you come to our show, all the stuff we do would be immoral if you take that proscenium.: So on. you did a lot on the street. You were on the street. Oh yeah, yeah. But but always as a juggler there. Right. It wasn't. Uh, so we try to follow this very strict moral code in the Penn and Teller show, which is what I call the sawing a woman in half code. Sawing a woman into half. Describe that. Which is, we saw a woman into have, halves on stage. You see that. No one leaves the theater thinking they've witnessed a murder. Right. Nobody. That is my rule for all magic. If I'm going to do a mind reading trick, you cannot leave the theater thinking that I can read minds. It must be exactly the same as not witnessing a murder. There's a lot of intellectual and moral gymnastics that need to be done in order to, f- to follow that code. And Teller and I, a big part of our writing tricks is trying to be intellectually
0: honest. So what is required of the street performer that you had? Oh, Some people well, I, are on the street I, and they score. Well, I, you know, I, uh, with my parents' permission,
1: you know, left home when I was 18 and was essentially homeless, hitchhiking around the country, hippie, and I supported myself juggling on streets and juggling in bars. And uh, you, need to, uh, you need to gather a crowd and you need to collect the money. So there's a bit of a Barker quality what's, to what's, it. Yeah, or as they call it, called the carny talker. Um, I was a really, really good street performer. As a matter of fact, Teller, uh, I'm not sure how to take this, but Teller always says, you know, the best thing you've ever done in your career was your 12-minute 12 <laughs> 12 street act. There was really nothing better than that. Uh, Where was the money good? What was the place that was like? I had a rule— But I would only work places that it was illegal because I thought that was sexy. And I worked Headhouse Square in Philadelphia and uh, knew all the police officers. And the police officers would come to my show and say, the second someone can convince me that you're begging, I'll arrest you. (laughs) Until then, you're doing a show. And I would do—I was making so much money. I was 19 years old, and I was making so much money street performing, I went to an accountant. And I said, to "File taxes." I said, "I want to file my taxes on the money I made." And he said, "What do you do?" And I said, "I'm a street juggler." And he said, "How much do you make?" And I told him, and I said, "I have, you know, I, I I keep records of every hat I pass and how much I make, and I have it all laid out here. And I I have when I brought it to the bank and when I did everything." And he said, uh, "And you're 19?" I said, "Yeah." And he said, uh, "If you go to the IRS and tell them you made this much money juggling." They will arrest you as a drug dealer. (laughs) They will assume you're You're a drug dealer. And then he said, and oh, by the way, I think you're a drug dealer. (laughs) By the way, I don't believe. You seem like a drug dealer. And I said, well, no, no, I'm really making this. He goes, take the money. Don't put it in the bank. Keep it in cash. Walk away. And
0: when does that change? Meaning then you're doing that.
1: Then I put all that money. Well, first of all. Totally ruined my voice because I'd work for 500 people outside, no training, just scream and put chloro... In all weather. Put chloraseptic in a Coke can and just go... <sighs> what was your
0: costume, your costume. To,
1: oh, yeah. My rule on street performing was you have to look so that people are embarrassed to give you less than a 20. So, so, so was the key to that? I wore a $3,000 watch when I street performed. I wore a really expensive suit, really expensive pants, yeah. was... Perfectly groomed. Much more. You look more want.
0: like Michael Douglas than the Artful Dodger. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. Absolutely.
1: My idea was I want to make as much money as Johnny Carson. Right. So I'll be out there looking like Johnny Carson. Right. So the idea was I would gather a crowd and you come up and go, man, he's really funny. He's really a good juggler. You'd be with your date and go, I, I can't give him 50 cents. Yeah. I got a 20. Maybe mumbled
0: up singles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: you can't do that. And uh then Teller would alternate with me in the same spot which we kind of owned and the um the local uh hoodlum children <laughs> uh loved us. Because what I would do is I'd, you know, have them take care of my money and buy props for me and take care of that kind of stuff. Trusted them. So anybody else that came in to take that spot, the police arrested them and the local kids harassed them. So we had that spot to ourselves. Yeah. And I would go to all the store owners that are around there. I would go up after every show and say, you're getting enough traffic in and out. I'm not blocking. Everything's okay. The police officers liked us. You joined the Chamber of Commerce. Yes, there. pretty much. Yeah. And uh, we did that very well. Then then I really got interested in doing Charlie uh, and I wanted to do a full evening show. We thought that the ideas that we had were more than just the 12 minutes. So we took all the money that we'd made street performing and put it into buying lights and sound and, and producing And went where shows. first?
0: You're off the street and you go where? Uh,
1: our very first uh, shows were at the Walnut Street Theater. They had a space that would seat like 75 people. And they had put that aside with a grant for experimental theater. And the experimental theater company (laughs) uh, could not get it together in three months to put an experimental show on. Now, you know, they couldn't in three months get it together. So they came to Teller, who they'd gone to college with, and said, you're doing your little show. Can you just put it in and we'll let you have the theater for free? Now, they were getting grants. We could have the theater for free. So we put the show up. And we charged whatever it was, $10. And we got wonderful reviews and put the place up. And then the uh, the head of the Walnut Street Theater called us in and said uh, so the theater company up there they uh, they gave you the uh, they gave you the space and how much money did they give you to put this on we said, oh, nothing they just gave us a space which is a big help man huge help not to pay rent we could really make money on this we're supporting ourselves this is terrific. we're getting going he goes yeah yeah and they were paid money to put a show on in there and they just give to you free so you guys are welcome to use the theater whenever you want and they're losing all their grants so we began <laughs> We became the people that killed killed experimental theater in that particular—and they were like, what did you do to us? We said, we didn't even—we didn't know we were supposed to lie. We could have said we can't make money in there, but as it turned out, we could make money. You know, in a a hundred-seat theater— we,
0: we could fill it up and make money doing eight shows a week. Um, so you, you, you perform inside, and you start to do the show. And what kind of a show was it back then? Well, we did—it was a three-person show then. We had, a, we had a
1: third partner who did classical music, and it was called the Asparagus Valley Cultural Society. Uh-huh. And uh, we got—we uh, did a thing that was so nuts. Teller was in charge of the putting the ads together and putting them in the paper, and I was in charge of getting critics to the show. So I just— put on my leather jacket and went, you know, to the list of people that were critics and walked up to their desk and said, hi, I'm Penn. We're doing a show next Friday. We can give you free tickets. Would you come and review our show? (laughs) To the, you know, to the head critic of the Philadelphia Inquirer who went, what are you doing here? (laughs) No, you go through your press agent and do this. And he said, why should I come see your show? And I went, because I can do this. And I picked up his little spindle that he put papers on and rammed it in my head and jammed it in my nose doing a thing called blockhead, an old Carney trick. And, you know, and then t- took out a cigarette lighter and did a little bit of fire eating stuff and said, come see our show. And he was not supposed to review little shows. He was the big critic, but he came to see our show. And then he wrote a rave review mm. and uh, which pissed off everybody because other big shows are opening. And then Teller said, you have to call him up and thank him. So I said oh, okay. So I called him up and said, "Thank you for your review. It's going to sell a lot of tickets. We're doing really well." And he said, "Did you like the review?" And I said, "Well, it's going to sell a lot of tickets. It's going to do really well." And he goes, "Wait a minute. Did you like did you like the review?" I said, "Well, it's selling a lot of tickets and I appreciate it. Thank you very much, sir." And he said, what are you saying? I said, I'm saying it's awful. You don't understand a thing we were doing. It's all, You say kind stuff about us, but it, I, I did this show so someone would understand it. You missed the point of everything I was saying. It broke my heart. And there was a long pause, and he <laughs> said, uh, can I do an interview with you for like a few hours, and then I will uh, write another review? I'll see the show again? And I said, Sure. I told Teller, Teller said, did you thank him? I said, yeah. I told him his review sucked. <laughs> teller said, oh, what are you doing? And he, uh, two weeks later, wrote another bigger review that said— More to your liking, I This assume. is a retraction of my previous review. Oh, good God. I said they were wonderful, and they are, but everything else I said was wrong. <laughs> wow. And then he went in and wrote a whole other review. So now— How do I get people to do that for me? We've got a 100-seat me? theater— that have had two front page of the entertainment section reviews within two weeks. So all of a sudden, we're selling tickets. We're sold out, you know, 100 seats. You know, selling 100 seats is not that hard, but it was huge to us. And then a producer saw us there, and we went out and played in uh, San Francisco for three years. At a theater there, that was 198 seats or something.
0: I remember reading an article once about because I'm thinking about Vegas and and Mm -hmm. what I know about Vegas acts. And I've been to Vegas a few times, but Mm -hmm. not not a lot. I'm not a gambler. I go see shows. How'd you miss that vice? (laughs) <laughs> Wait, right, exactly. I don't. I don't. I never. I never. gamble with your background. It right. seems like you know. The... Well, I always yeah. would have thought. You know, I would go, and people would gamble, and I think, and I lost, and I thought, I, I can't afford this. Oh, I have the money to throw away, and I'd see guys who do that. I mean, I don't want to name names, but I got some pretty high-end friends of mine who really blow a lot of dough on that. And I go, God, how do you do that? And it's so irresponsible. There are like, so wanna... many other
1: ways to waste money. Yeah. I mean, exactly.
0: I like, well, I like, like boats. I like yeah. boats. That's, <laughs> that, that's almost worse than gambling against because You can drown. But I was reading this article once, this wonderful old article about Wayne Newton. And they said how, uh, uh, you know, the, the the big punchline was that the guy goes and he and he takes, uh, with a stopwatch, the measure of the show. And Newton would come out for the encore and say, Hey, you know, we, we never do this. I never do this, but I just love this crowd. I never play this song, uh-huh. but, you know, I'm just going to throw all my, uh, you know, my, my, my preferences to the wind here. And he comes, and, he, and he, we never stay for another song. I'm going to do one more song. Yeah. And he just teases the audience. With a, and the guy, t- and every show, the show exact ended exactly the same. Yeah, time. exactly. The show was exactly like yeah. one hour yeah. and tw- and 14 minutes. Oh, Wayne
1: Newton. Did you ever yeah. see Wayne Newton's show there? No, oh, no. It was It was just great. No, I'm sure it was phenomenal. Uh, yeah, it, pro- I mean, it probably still is. I haven't seen him in a few but years. But the
0: idea though, of the show being for the man who you and your partner do 250 shows a year, regardless of the fact that it's in your own space, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's obviously, it's a very lucrative thing, is, is, is is like, do you go out there, and there's a menu, like a playlist? Oh, no, 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 no.
1: We do, we do you, the same show. You, you do the same yeah. show. Now, we're always writing new stuff, so right. when I say the same show, it's the same same show as the night before not the same show as the year before right um and i love that you know there's this thing that happens um in the variety arts you know uh we're, i'm just old enough i'm 60 you're an agva i'm yes i am i am i'm, <laughs> no, agva. I, I'm yeah.
0: <laughs> I am a i am I know i know I'm proud agva man. <laughs> I
1: know. um i'm 60 so when i was learning to juggle at 15 16 17 i could just meet the guys who worked vaudeville their whole life, right? I could just meet the guys who wrote a show when they were 17 years old and were doing it when they were 80. Yeah. And hadn't changed it.
0: Yeah. Perform with Jolson. Yeah
1: yeah. 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 But there were guys, jugglers, you know, because juggling, it's not like music. You can't do a whole different routine with juggling. You learn that trick. It takes you six years to learn the trick. That's the trick you're gonna be doing for a while, you know? You know how to throw a cigarette behind your back, catch it in your mouth, and throw a match, catch it, and then light them. That's what you're gonna do. That's your closer for the rest of your life. And there's something you're able to do after doing something. 10,000 times, not a thousand, 10,000 times where you're able to communicate with the audience in ways that you don't even know what's giving them the information. When you first do a gag, you know, one of the things you see on Saturday Night Live, you know, I always want to say, boy, I'd like to see this sketch after they did it 10,000 times. As Bob Dylan said, I want to play guitar without tricks. You know, all the tricks would be gone. And it would just be the material that you're just selling. And I just love that. So Teller and I try to be very conscientious. And there's some stuff that's only a few months old. But there's other stuff that we've been doing 40 years. Okay. There's one trick that actually predates Penn and Teller that Teller did alone. Dunninger? That he's doing? Yeah, no, actually, yeah, it's a Houdini trick that Teller does. And goddamn it, we're in rehearsals So we decided to really spruce up the show and worked with John Rando, who's a great, great director, wonderful, great director. We decided you know, we haven't worked with a director ever, and um, so we're we're going through stuff we've done. 10,000 times and we're going through with the director and going through moment by moment now getting us in in the afternoon to do a trick we've done 10,000 times like what the fuck are you doing we know how to do this <laughs> but we get in there and we wanted to do it wanted to dig in and I'm watching teller from the wings you know just the other night watching him do a trick that is the first trick I ever saw him do so I saw him do this trick when I was first meeting him before there was a pen and teller Watching him do the first trick I ever saw. And I'm watching him going, you know, until there's whatever he is, 67 years old now. I saw him first do it when he was, you know, 25. And uh, I'm watching the trick and I go, God damn, he's better. You know, and we have this thing in our culture that if the Rolling Stones are doing satisfaction, oh, well, they they should have outgrown that. They should have done this. We've done this temporary thing in our culture that forgets the fact that, goddamn, people can get good at shit. People can get really good at stuff.
0: One thing Penn and Teller got very good at was shocking David Letterman during their multiple appearances on his show. Here's an unsuspecting Dave suggesting that their act was missing something. You know, originality. Originality. That, but you know, I guess the thing that I missed most out of the whole deal was it just didn't seem to be an element of a uh, real surprise. There just didn't oh. seem to be any, any surprise at all. The then Teller lifted a hat off Dave's desk, casually revealing a pile of live cockroaches. Oh, I'd like to oh. Point out that these. Oh, come on now, these animals are not being. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. You can hear all of my other interviews with entertainers, politicians, and entrepreneurs in our archives at HearstheThing.org. Like my conversation with Gillette's friend, David Blaine, another world-famous magician known for extreme feats of physical endurance. You're standing on a beam for, you were up there... 36 hours yeah, 36 or something. Yeah, 36 hours. How was that on your body? Well, you know... <laughs> When I was a little kid in school and I would get in trouble and the teacher would say, go stand in the corner. I was like, come on, this is easy. Like you stand for 45 minutes is supposed to be hard. Yeah. So yeah, and then you can apply that. So it's like how long can you stand in one place? So that's really what it's about. Take a listen at here's the thing.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In addition to his show in Vegas, my guest Penn Gillette regularly appears in television and film. He's also done some stage acting. He had a part in The Exonerated, a play that brings to life the stories of a half-dozen former death row inmates. Penn doesn't strike you as a man who was afraid of much, but he says for that project, the fear was real. They put me into that with Bob Balaban...
1: Uh, Directing it. Sure. And I was terrified, you know?
0: Why? Uh,
1: Because I had never done that Straight kind act. of legitimate acting right. and I was on stage like Mia Farrow and you know and and yeah. uh, uh, Peter Peter Coyote and people yeah. that you know, can act yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know and uh, I just loved it I yeah. love taking someone else's words you should do more of that I love thinking about that and the few times I've done little movie things and stuff I've just uh, I've just really you should really do enjoyed more it.
0: I really mean that you should do more I mean I know that means stopping doing this other what thing are you, what is what is I do you and <laughs> I do orphans I was not like well, I, think, yeah, I can think of a lot of things you should do. <laughs> Seriously, I can think of a lot of parts. But you I, I, I really, really like. You should and play I, Hickey in uh, in Ice I did a wonderful. But well, there was a wonderful
1: moment uh, when uh, there was they were doing that that the movie about uh, blacklisting uh, uh, with De Niro. Uh, I forgot the name of it, but he was yeah. having a friend. Um. Uh. But I was going to play the part. I was auditioning for the part of Bunny, and I got to read with De Niro. I get that far <laughs> that I get to read yeah, with De, that's De Niro. That's enough in a so, way. So I'm it? sitting there in front of the camera and we're going through our script and he's just kind of mumbling through it. He's not doing anything. You know, he's just, and I'm going, oh, that's no big deal. I'm with De Niro and I'm reading my part and I'm going, wow, I'm, I'm doing a really good job here. I mean, even, even compared to De Niro, I'm doing really good. Yeah. And then there comes the moment where he has to grab his friend who sold him out to the, uh, to the blacklisted him you know who's yeah. me who's a college friend and like hug me and grab me and do this whole <laughs> and all of a sudden i saw really world class acting like 6 inches away from my face and i was yeah. like oh, i couldn't even stand the scene it was like whoa you're good yeah. 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 <laughs> and it was just i would love to have the experience of somebody you know within a scene cuz i'm always addressing the audience and it's so interesting to me when you see really, really good actors how they get into that, get into that moment, you know, into that thing.
0: But so for you, uh, you're committed to do this for a while—the—the—the the, the, the Vegas thing.
1: Yeah, you know, when I, whenever that I can, might
0: be in the future.
1: Whenever I can find time, you know, whenever I can find a week or two, I agree. You know, it's like Teller flies back and forth to Chicago to direct The Tempest, right? And uh, I just finished up this movie that I crowdfunded that I that what I acted in. It's a movie called Director's Cut. And it's a what cr- is it? crazy, crazy movie. Uh, the idea of the movie, I was really fascinated by, uh, by the idea that uh, information is out there. Information is out there. So now when you make a movie, it all gets put into hard drives and it's on sharers and people can get it. So I postulated a guy who was obsessed with an actress, obsessed with her. And the movie was being crowdfunded and crowdfunded his way onto the set and then got the codes to get all the outtakes from the movie. And then kidnaps her and then uses all the footage to make his own movie that tells his own story with him as the star. So we had Missy Pyle. Who so says, it's
0: like the sequel to uh, Human Centipede. Yeah,
1: well, yeah. It's yeah, so, not as sick as that. N- well, not as sexually but I, sick, but intellectually sick. I love sick. the
0: meta of the sequel. Oh, it's very, Human very centipede. meta. Yeah.
1: And, uh, and uh, I, play, uh, I play Herbert, who's a guy who, who does this and is on the, on the set. And then I get to have the scenes where the two men who are acting in it are doing a scene with her, but she's in my basement. So I've tried to match the scene to match that. So it's all about continuity and changing that and all about movie making. You and I should do a horror movie. Together, oh, yes. Like a really low-winded yes. horror
0: movie. Yes. Something really tawdry and, f- and disgusting. I mean, yeah, well, we, uh, with a conscience. Anything, anything. With a conscience. Yes, we, we, of we, course. We, yeah, we have to anything,
1: watch. anything I could do, too. Say a couple
0: of atheists. Sure.
1: No, Catholic and an atheist. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Catholic, a Catholic and an <laughs> atheist mean we're hobos. Sure. We're jugglers. And we're juggling jugglers. by, by jugglers, a fire And we'll get and someone the the to, hobos to, hang to hang do your
1: arms we, for you so you can have some. Yes, you could You do.
0: Yeah,
1: even the fact that you're doing this. Oh, I
0: got to do like this. This. Yeah, he tells
1: you. Well, well you gotta go like this. Right? I'll work
0: with you a little what, bit on how <laughs> It's it's not. That's something else. That's a urologist Yeah, that. exactly. <laughs> now, 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 the uh, tell me what is movie night? You're a movie fan. What's movie night? um Tuesday nights after my show,
1: people come over. And we watch a in movie Vegas. in Vegas over my house.
0: They have a killer screening room.
1: Yeah. And we have about, uh, sometimes 20, 30 people come over.
0: You love movies. And,
1: uh, well, yes, but this is not showing the love of movies. This is just 30 people screaming. Right. And people think when they come over that it's going to be witty. It's not witty, yeah. it's simply obscenity. Right. It's simply spewing out the bile from the week. You do. It is a, is a group, it's a group
0: encounter so session. So you mock the movie.
1: Much more than Mark, more, more than Mark, and now we're in the middle of uh, twenty four. We're watching every season of twenty four. Oh, fantastic, and I am so trying to convince Kiefer to come by one night to Because <laughs> I would love to have him sitting there screaming. This. Yes, <laughs> he's going to scream at Kiefer. <laughs> how, how how tall are you exactly, Kiefer? You know, just we, we And it's just it's just screaming. She's just because you know I tend to because I have. My children are nine and ten years old. And because I do so many shows and have so much stuff going on, I really don't get a chance to hang out with friends. So this is my two hours a week yeah. that just it's what your poker game. What some, yeah,
0: exactly. It's what some yeah. guys would do with poker. Yeah, it's just it's just yelling. So when did you become this arbiter of bullshit? When did when did it, it just the things that you strike you as bullshit? That's whatever word you want to use—disingenuous uh-huh. or false or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it sat in your craw. How long before you decided well, you I got to do a TV show out of this? We uh,
1: we have always wanted to do a skeptical TV show, always, and we started pitching that in the eighties. Teller too, yeah, and we're because we're both. You know, there's two very strong schools in magic. There's the um, Houdini school which is the, um, we are, uh, or as Robert Houdin said, we are actors playing the parts of magicians. Uh, It also starts with uh, the 16th century discovery of witchcraft, which is the first book written that says this stuff is fake. We are doing tricks. There's that whole school that believes that the magician is someone who helps us study how we ascertain truth. In other words, I've studied trickery, so let's talk about the truth. Then there's a whole other school, which is, you know, David Blaine, for instance, who's a friend of mine and who we get along with well. We have a very strong philosophical disagreement. He believes that the magician's job is to distort reality, that you must leave his show thinking things that aren't true. Uh He believes that strongly and can make a very cogent argument for it, which I disagree with. But I know, I like him. Um, There's those two schools. And Tell and I have always been strongly in the Houdini, Amazing Randy Camp on that,
0: and and P.S. I don't see a David Blaine theater in Vegas, by the way. (laughs) So I don't know who I'm I'm putting my money on. (laughs) Although we had him on the show, and he was great. Uh,
1: He's great. He's wonderful. He's a great, great magician, and uh, and a great guy. Um, So we've been pushing this, and I would go in and say, the nuts always have the passion, and the scientists always have this low key, measured way. What we will give you in bullshit is we will do the best to give you the scientific point of view done with the passion of a nut. And I'm willing to give you all that passion and rip my heart open and be wrong and go off half-cocked, but I'm going to do it for the other side. And the the topics came to you. Like, what was the first show? Well, the first show uh, is very complex because the first show uh, was about talking to the dead. And we conceived the show to uh, attack, you know, John Edward and those people who say they can communicate with the dead. And I conceived it intellectually. And then while thinking about it, my mom died at the age of 90 in 2000. And we started doing the show in 2001. And this happened, uh, forgive me for, uh, I'm only in this one way comparing myself to Houdini, but Houdini had this intellectual dislike for people who claimed to talk to the dead. And it was a lot of Houdini's posturing. I do better tricks than them. I do tricks no one can figure out. Their tricks aren't that good. And then his mom dies. And um, Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, Sherlock Holmes writer, who was a big believer in, in, in spiritualist, Houdini wanted to be around him because Houdini um, uh, was the son of a rabbi, but, uh, but was not well-educated. And Arthur Conan Doyle was very respected and very well educated. And Houdini was thrilled to be traveling in that circle. He was cheap, carney trash, traveling the circle with the intellectuals. He loved
0: it. Eric was.
1: Yeah. And his mother, Houdini's mother died. And uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's wife did automatic writing. Okay. Which was, you would you just, without thinking, you would just write. And it was the spirits talking through you. And Arthur Conan Doyle said, well, you know, you miss your mom so much because Houdini was uh, another similarity, a mama's boy, which I was. I was very close to my mom. And Houdini, you know, okay, this is a little dangerous. You're going to talk to my mom, but okay. So his wife sat down and then did automatic writing. And
0: at Conan the t- Doyle's wife. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, and at wow. the top of the page. But I would have given to be there.
1: Was a cross. And the first words were, dear Harry. <laughs> and then it went on. Now, what Arthur Conan Doyle's wife didn't know was that his mother didn't speak English. (laughs) He was born in Budapest. He claimed to be from Appleton, Wisconsin. He was actually born in Budapest. He was the son of a rabbi. (laughs) Cross at the top, probably not right. And his mother never once called him Harry. That was his stage name. So Houdini felt what it feels like to have your image of someone you love distorted and Houdini went apeshit. And then the second half of his career was all busting these
0: debunking. people.
1: And so we were going to do Talking to the Dead, and I we did that show, uh, you know, within a year of my mom dying. And so it was very, very passionate. Because the point that people don't make is a lot of times the people that do this communication with the dead, they say that they're bringing solace to people. The most valuable thing I have in my life is the memories of my family. My mom and dad, also you know, my children, the new memories I'm making, but let's, let's go with from the past, the memories of my mom and dad. If I come to you grief-stricken about my mom, and you claim that you're communicating with her, and then we have some sort of communication, what you have done, you can call it bringing solace, but you can also see it as distorting my memory. You've now said something that she never said, and I cannot think of a crueller thing in order to get power and make money. You're doing this, and it's actually the most valuable thing. It's like lying about me
0: me while I'm alive. Yeah, yeah, same thing.
1: And uh, it's it's horrible. I am naturally not cynical, and when you're naturally not cynical, you bump into this stuff all the time. I tend to, uh, I tend to be skeptical, but not cynical. And people always put those together and they are very different emotional states. You know, skepticism is, is cold and cynicism is hot. You know, cynicism is, uh, everybody's full of shit. Everybody's lying to us. Everybody's doing this. Skepticism is let's get to the truth. And those are two very different things. You know, and I I talked to Bill Maher about this because Bill Maher is proudly cynical. And I am proudly skeptical, and we are different things. Mm-hmm. It's a very different well put, reaction. Well and um, and I think that if you get too Pollyanna, and I am very Pollyanna, I am much too optimistic. I'm much too straightforward. It's one of the things that you get. You get with a with a perfect. You know, everybody in show business complains I'm from a dysfunctional family. I drop out of those conversations. You know, my uh, my dad never got the memo that dads are supposed to give you conditional love. (laughs) He never got that. He was just unconditional love and Mm. supportive and even things he didn't understand. My parents tried from the time I was 17 until the day they died, tried to get me to cut my hair. And the really funny part of it was, and this boy, this baby laugh, is my mother, when she was uh, in her 80s, And I was in my 40s. My mother actually said, I just love this moment. My mom's sitting there and she goes, you know, Penn, when you were a young man— having the long hair was fine. But now that you're older, I mean, you're older than middle-aged and you have some gray in there, you need to get your hair cut. And I said, Mom, this is how far we've (laughs) come. We've now come to the point where now it was okay when I was young. That never happened because every single time she saw me, that battle went on. But I want to say, and I want to say this proudly to the world, that before my mother died, I went out one evening when visiting her and remembered to get milk on the way home.
0: Something I had never done my entire life before I, I that. know. As, as we sign off here, I know what play you and I should do. What's that? We're going to do a play together. Okay. We're going to do Beckett. Oh, uh, uh, I would. Nothing I would like We'll more. do Beckett together. Nothing I'm I would like. Right right nothing. Sure. I mean, we may bomb. We may bomb. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. We, but we, we, we may. will do it for us. Oh, I would. I would. I would. I we would remember, we only to do, do it. it for
1: us. Well, I would do it for. I would do
0: give anything. Can we set that up, Glenn? Look, Glenn says yes. Glenn says Yes. If you missed Penn & Teller during their six-week run on Broadway this summer, you can catch them in Vegas. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Here's the Thing is produced by WNYC Radio in association with Stony Brook Southampton Graduate Arts.